Bless, good morning to each and every one of you. I'm going to do that again. A blessed good morning to each and every one of you. I'm going to try this side. A blessed good morning to each and every one of you on this side. I think I'm going to try this side. A blessed good morning to each and every one of you on this side. All right, let's do that in concert. A blessed good morning to each and every one of you. It is certainly a joy, a pleasure, and a magnanimous privilege to be here with you in common, and just to have the opportunity to share my faith in the risen Savior, and to remind you and myself what an awesome God we serve. I believe I can say without any successful contradiction that we serve an awesome God. Anyone who can walk on water and not get wet. Anyone who can go through the fire and not break a sweat. Anyone who can die before lunch, be buried before supper, and raised from the grave before breakfast is an awesome God. And this morning as we are here to be reminded of the awesomeness of the God that we serve, of the vastness of the love that he has poured, and of the magnitude in which he continues to show us that love. This morning I stand here as one who is humbled, as one who is grateful, and as one who always sees the opportunity to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you to do something for me, and this is something that I do everywhere I travel, everywhere I go. And that has to do with the fact that in the world it's already a very difficult place. And as Christians, as we aggregate together, we ought to express the love of Christ in a way that is so overt that everyone who walk through this auditorium ought to feel the presence of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to look to the person next to you. Look at them eyeball to eyeball. They're not going to bite you, I promise. <laughs> eyeball to eyeball with a big cherry smile on your face. And tell that person from the stimulus of the love of Jesus Christ from your heart that I'm happy to see you this morning. <laughs> you, you see how good that is, eh? <laughs> Generally, when I do that, no one looks to the front and says, I'm happy to see you. But, but it's been 10 years and counting since I've been preaching that I, I am happy. Uh, I've gotten accustomed to that, that no one looks to the front and say, I'm happy to see you. Uh, but just so that you know, I'm happy to see you from where I stand. And this morning, if you are a visitor, as I am, um, you've made a wise choice to be here in the attendance. And uh, as we get into the Word of God, I pray and trust that something would be said to your overall edification. And that if you're not a member of the body of Christ, you would be drawn closer. And that you would make Jesus the savior of your life. I feel somewhat remiss if I went along and not identify the fact that uh, when I got into Carmen after a long drive from Saskatchewan, pretty frazzled by the drive, and for some reason I think I took the wrong route, um, I'm going to file a lawsuit to Google. <laughs> for having me going through those crazy routes. 
Um, but I eventually got there and I met up with, with Wayne. Um, we spoke prior to that several times uh, in preparation to my travel to Kamen. And uh, he reminded me of the first time we met in Central. And how I said to him, he looks like someone who plays for the riders. And he looked at me with this look on his face and he's like, what, what are you talking about? Right? No one in Winnipeg would want to play for the riders. <laughs> like, like, like you have the wrong team, Curtis. Like, and then I recall he shook my hand vigorously and I almost lost my right arm. So yesterday when I met him again, I guess he had that behind his mind somewhere and he decided to give a replay of that. So in the event that I don't gesticulate as well as I ought to, blame Wayne for that. All right? Um, but I'm grateful to Wayne and uh, Colette for their kind hospitality, uh, for keeping me, and they've been a good host. And uh, we had a good meeting with the elders. I had a good meeting with the elders last night. And um, I'm very optimistic in what the Lord is about to do in that stead. Um, for those of you I met earlier, I'm happy to meet you as well. Uh, but based on the immensity of my message and the scarcity of time, I'm going to try my utmost to get directly into the lesson for this morning. All right, so we're going to be looking at the book of Romans, and this is one of my favorite books. This is one of the books in the entire Bible that I relish a lot. I periodically revert to Romans because of what the Apostle Paul does in that particular letter. A lot of scholars will attest to the fact that when you read the book of Romans, you're not just reading a light snack. It's not like going to Tim Hortons to get some coffee uh, or get some, some breakfast muffins or stuff like that. In fact, Romans would be comparable to having uh, a lunch at Olive Gardens. Mm -hmm. So a, a lot of scholars actually, when they present Romans or when they are... Uh, argue the standpoint of Romans, they would get you to realize that what Paul presented is noted as a systematic treaty. In other words, the Apostle Paul, when he took his pen of inspiration, what he decided to do was to communicate unambiguously clear that mankind's purpose is to submit to the grace of Jesus Christ. And in submission to that grace, it ought to be an automatic response in service. So Paul, what he does is that he has two major divisions in the book of Romans. Keep in mind that I'm not going to get you into every single aspect of the book. You know, one person said to me this morning, you can preach for as long as you like, but I'm not going to fall for that trap. <laughs> you know, I heard, about, I heard about a preacher who went to Texas and uh, he went to the elders and he said, how long should I preach for? And the elders said, you can preach for as long as you like. And he said, amen, I really love that spirit. And the elders said, you can preach as long as you like. However, we will be here for 12 o'clock. <laughs> and then afterwards, we're going to leave. <laughs> All right, so I don't want to fall in that trap. Right, but the book of Romans is divided into two major uh, divisions. You have the first part from chapter 1 to chapter 11, which is called the practical side, or rather the doctrinal side of the letter. And what the Apostle Paul does within the doctrinal aspect of the letter is that he gets the church to realize everything that God did. 
So from chapter 1 to chapter number 3, Paul deals with what the theologians call the universality of sin. In other words, it is Paul's presentation systematically to argue the fact that mankind is in sin, that mankind has a serious problem, and unless Jesus Christ, unless God, unless the Godhood intervene into the affairs of humanity, we are all going to hell first class. This is Paul's argument from chapter 1 to chapter number 3. He presents what is known as the universality of sin or the doctrine of sin. And from chapter 4 to chapter number 5, he deals with what is called the doctrine of justification. In other words, he brings Abraham to the witness stand and he shows Abraham as a figure. And he said, just as Abraham was justified without law and before law by faith, so also as Christians, or so also we are justified before God, separate from keeping the law of Moses. From chapter 6 all the way to chapter 11, he continues the theme of the doctrine of justification, or rather sanctification. In other words, when we are justified, that is when we are made right before God, I want to suggest to you that we are made right not just so that we can walk around, shouting around, not just that we can walk around being vauntful, not just we can walk around thinking that we are all that on a stick, but that when we are justified, made right in the sight of God, we are actually done so, or it is done to us from the standpoint that God now has enabled us to serve. This is what Paul is dealing with from a systematic standpoint. Of course, as you deal with the book of Romans, it is quite evident that the Apostle Paul identifies himself as the oral authority of the letter. And I said the oral authority of the letter because the one who actually penned the letter of the Romans was a scribe by the name of Tertius. If you look at Romans chapter 16 and around verse number 22, Tertius said, I, Tertius, who penned this letter, greets you in the name of Jesus Christ. So Tertius was the one who wrote, actually wrote the letter, but the authority, the apostolic authority came from the apostle Paul. So in chapter 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. He identifies himself as the apostolic authority within the confides of the letter. And I want to suggest to you that as we look at the historicity regarding the letter of the Romans, he writes particularly to a congregation or a group of congregation within the city of Rome. He identifies his recipients in chapter 1 and verse number 15. He said, for as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So he identifies his audience, and it's amazing that he does that because in identifying his audience, keep in mind that it is acclaimed that Paul at the time of writing would have been somewhere in Corinth, and he's writing to a congregation that is extremely diverse. It's made up of Jews, and it is made up of Gentiles. He also identifies that in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16, for he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first 
and also to the Greek. So he writes to get the church to realize that the gospel that he is preaching or he's about to present, he's writing to a congregation that is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Now there's a reason that he does that. Because if you understand anything about the historicity regarding the Jews and the Gentiles, you would realize that they were like oil and water. They could not get along. The Jews had the historical head start in that they had a covenant relationship with God through their father Abraham. It was Abraham who started the whole race of the Jewish movement. And God went into covenant at Sinai under the leadership of Moses and he formed that relationship, Exodus chapter 20, and he formed that covenantal relationship with the children of Israel and the Jews did not understand that the covenantal relationship that God had formed with them was not to get them to think that they were better than everyone else but rather to be used as a medium to get God's glory to permeate through the entire world. But they took that information and they started feeling a bit vauntful. They started feeling a bit prideful. They started feeling like they were better than everyone else. My, uh, my director in the school, Parker Lee Henderson, when I attended seminary uh, in 2009 in Trinidad, Parker Lee Henderson was the first U.S. missionary to Thailand. And he said to me, if you ever see a turtle on a stick... Know that it got help to get there. If you ever see a turtle on a stick, know that that turtle got help to get there. Well, the Jews were elevated, and for some reason, they refused to realize who elevated them. So what they did is that they started looking down with scorn at the Gentiles. And now in Christianity, where the playing field has been leveled, and God is now saying, watch this, that it was always my eternal purpose to include all of humanity within my scheme. The Jews could not release the historical tension they had. And Paul is writing to them to get them to realize that you are guilty just as the Gentiles are. He's writing to the Jews and the Gentiles to understand that it is absolutely necessary for you to be saved through the medium of obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he tells us in Romans chapter number 1 and verse number 16, as I previously quoted, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the dunamis, the ability of God to save to everyone who believes to the Jew first, because the gospel was presented to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So he gets them to understand this. And part of what I want to say to you, Carmen, is that what Paul is psyching them up or preparing them to receive is that all of mankind are sinful. Each and every one of us outside of Jesus Christ, we're in trouble. He wants them to understand that mankind is indeed in a depraved situation. And as good as we might think we are at times, because sometimes what we do is that we think that just because I did not sin for two weeks, then I automatically become a candidate suitable for the celestial shores of heaven. But I want to suggest to you that on your best day, you're not good enough for heaven. 
I want to suggest to you that had not Christ intervened and died on that cross and suffered ignominiously for the sins of you and I, all of us would have been doomed to hell. This is what Paul is presenting in his argument from chapter 1 to chapter number 3. Under the subheading, the universality of sin, he says, for all have sinned. And I know there are some preachers who might interpret that, y'all have sinned. You know, some pious folks, y'all have sinned and fall short, especially y'all have sinned and fall short. But keep in mind, when Paul is saying all have sinned, he's also including himself in the equation. Me too. So here's what he does. Well, when we look at the subject of sin, I want us to pay attention because generally what happens is whenever we hear sin, we generally relegate and con we confine sin to just an action that we do. In other words, we say sin is something bad we did or something, something, that we, something good that we did not do. We look at sin from the standpoint of commission and omission. But from Paul's mindset, sin goes a little deeper. In other words, what's, what Paul is trying to get the church to realize is that sin is actually a nature that we have. And in other words, what he's saying is that the actions that we do are an indication that there is a nature of sin that is the impulse. So I am doing sinful things because there's a sinful nature in me. That's what Paul is basically saying. It reminds me of a story I heard about of a guy who was walking one day and he so happened to see a rattlesnake almost halfway frozen. So he decided to take that rattle, rattlesnake. He felt sorry for the snake. Took the rattlesnake, brought it back home, decided to put it by the fireplace, warmed it up a bit. And as soon as the rattlesnake warmed up and was able to move again, the rattlesnake bit him and released that venom. So he looked at the rattlesnake and he said to the rattlesnake, I just saved you. You were halfway dead. I actually had pity on you. And why is it would why would you bite me or why would you injure me after I just showed you kindness? And the rattlesnake looked at him and said, I appreciate the kindness that you showed to me. And it is your nature as you're supposed to do good works. But I'm a snake and it's my nature to bite you. And sometimes we don't realize that. When we do bad things, it is an indicator that there's a nature inside of us that is now the impulse of that reaction. And that is what Paul is getting to as we look at sin. In fact, there's, there's a university professor at Harvard. He was pretty famous for saying, he said, if your mother and your father had no kids, there's a high probability that you might not have any kids too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You get the point. <laughs> Amen. 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 All right. So as we look at the nature of sin, keep in mind that Paul wants us to understand that sin is a nature. In chapter 7 and verse 17, he says, So now it is no more I that do it, speaking about sin, but sin which lives in me. Is that an action living in me? No, it's an impulse. 
Romans 7.20, but if I do what I am not supposed to do, then it is no longer I who do it, but sin which lives in me. That's the impulse. Chapter 6 and verse number 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That sounds like a nature, right? And then in chapter 6 and verse 15, he deals with the act. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? And of course, rhetorically, he said, absolutely not. <laughs> so he begins his argument in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, when he deals with both the action and the nature. He says in chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he says, shall we continue in sin? That is the action that grace may abound. God forbids. For how is it we who are dead to sin the nature live any longer in it? Are you seeing that? So in other words, what Paul wants the church to understand is that when you do acts of sin, it becomes the overt reality that there is an impulse, a nature that is opposed to the way of God. And he's telling the church in arguments, each and every one of you in here possess that nature. That's what he's saying. His argument is you Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles are. And that would have been an insult to the Jews. Because Jews saw themselves as the people who dress nicely and go to church. We don't sin. Gentiles do that. We don't go clubbing. Everybody, we, we are good folks. It's really the Gentiles who do that, right? That's what they're basically saying. And Paul is diffusing their argument. And he's saying, in as much as you have conceptualized a stance of arrogance, I want to bring you down to a level to get you to realize that you need the gospel just as the Gentiles. So he deals with them and he gets us to realize where the nature of sin came from. He said in Romans chapter, 12 and verse, chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore as for one man, speaking about Adam, sin entered the world. For one man. So they, they would have asked, uh, so how did we become sinful? They would have asked. And he's saying you became sinful because you have a connection to Adam. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death passed unto all men, that's the consequence, and here is it, because all sinned. <laughs> so the consequence is simply correlated to the fact that all human beings possesses the nature of sin. And that is why the first thing the gospel does is that it addresses the nature of sin by now allowing us to receive the spirit of Jesus. So now we have a different nature. So when Paul said, how is it we who are dead to sin? He's saying that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God diffused, he actually nullified, he actually killed that nature in principle. But now your mind needs to be renewed to live the life of Jesus that's already in you. All of that is done. The blamelessness that you are seeking for is already in you in Christ. But now you have to get to renewal. You need to get back to that original position. 
everything you're seeking for is already in you in Christ, but now you have to leave it out. Paul would put it this way, work out your salvation. Work it out. He didn't say work for your salvation. <laughs> he said work it out. It's inside of you in Christ. Your responsibility is to make it evident, to bring it out, to evince that stuff. That's a beautiful thing. So Paul gets us to understand in chapter 1, he says the Gentiles are guilty. And here's what I want to deal with quickly. In Romans chapter 1 verse 18, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. I want you to focus on two words, the word wrath and the word heaven. Because Paul now has brought to the witness stand the Gentiles. And his argument is that you Gentiles are guilty. And when Paul said for the wrath, he uses a word in the Greek that fails in his dictionary, says that that word came from the Greek word orge. And from orge, it means in the English, exasperation. It means you are now turning on your hawk. You're really angry. You're ready to smash down the place, right? So when he said, for the wrath of God, that word orgy means God's intense, concentrated, holy anger. That God's, his anger towards sin is revealed from heaven. The word heaven comes from the Greek word according to Theos, Uranus, and Uranus is sometimes used to represent the heaven where God dwells. The third heaven. It is also used to represent the stratosphere, where the birds and all those things fly. It is used to represent space, where all of the galaxies are. But at the same time, Uranus' heaven is also used to describe the gospel. In this case, when he said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, he's speaking directly about the gospel. And I know that to be so because in chapter 17 and in chapter 16, he already made it pretty clear. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, what? The righteousness of God is revealed. So it is consistent with chapter 7, verse 17, because he said, for the wrath of God is also revealed in the gospel. So in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed, but in the gospel, God's anger is revealed too. And a lot of times we do not focus on the anger of God, because a lot of times we have pacified God so much that we made him, oh, he's too good to do anything bad, or bad we say. He is too loving to punish. 
if I were to use that correction. <laughs> but God loves you too much to allow you to continue in sin. <laughs> and the gospel is a message that God is willing to save sinful people, but it is also a preempt to get sinful people to know that if you don't obey that gospel, there's a consequence. <laughs> Can you imagine that the gospel reveals the wrath of God? And in what way, you might ask? Because the gospel tells us about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But let's focus on the death. Because while Jesus hung on that cross, in Matthew chapter 27 and around verse number 46, the Bible tells us at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Can you imagine for the first time in the Trinitarian establishment for the Trinitarian rule, God the Father turned his back on his son. And you might ask, why? Because at this point in time, Jesus had all of the sins of the earth on the world upon him. And that is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, for God made him who knew no sin. To become sin on our part that we might become the righteousness of him. Can you imagine that God hates sin so much that when that sin was on his son, it actually created a severance for a moment in time. That the father turned back. That the father allowed Jesus to be treated as you and I should be treated for the sins that he carried upon himself. So God's wrath was, was indeed shown in that he allowed his son to go through the most painful, humiliating circumstances. So Paul gets the Gentiles to understand that you are guilty of sin. And can you imagine? The Gentiles, the Jews at that point in time would have said a resounding amen because in their minds, you Jew Gentiles are sinful people and on the left side and the right side, you would hear the Jews saying amen. It reminded me of a preacher I heard about from Texas who had the reputation of being the most righteous man in his county. The story goes on to say one day he was invited to do a gospel meeting in India. And while he flew to India, it so happened that a tornado came and just blew through the county and leveled the entire place. So unaware of what had happened, he flew back into Texas, and it so happened that he met his next-door neighbor at the airport. So he came over because he saw his next-door neighbor was crying, and he said, what's wrong? And then the neighbor said to him, preacher, are you unaware of what happened? He said, what happened? He said, when you left and you flew to India... A tornado came and blew through the county and my house fell. And the preacher looked at him and said to him, God sent that tornado to teach you a lesson. It's because of your sins. God sent that tornado to blow through the county and you should repent of your sins. And the neighbor looked at the preacher and said, Preacher, I think you're absolutely right. God might have sent that tornado to teach me a lesson because I'm a sinful man. But what I do not understand is that your house got blown down too. <laughs> you see, it's always easy to point the sins out of other people. 
until the shoe is on the other foot. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> it's always easy to identify when people are going wrong, and we say that. We must certain amplify the tone. But when our sins are brought to the monitor, there seems to be a reduction in the volume. Amen. <laughs> Amen. 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 So Paul, after uh, the Jews would have said amen to the Gentiles, Paul brings the Jews to the witness stand and he's saying, you too are guilty of sin. In chapter 2, verse 17, and I'm almost done, he says, indeed you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and a confidence that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach others or another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, Paul is saying, watch this. He's saying, you Jews, you are looking down your nose at the Gentiles, and you're saying they're sinful folks. But if I am to look at you and do my prognosis effectively, you guys are even worse off than the Gentiles. That's what he's saying. Because you had a covenant with me and you did not honor that covenant. In fact, the Gentiles got where they are because you did not live the way you were supposed to. <laughs> can you imagine the implication that that has to Christians? That the world can get increasingly darker because we shun the responsibility to share the light. That the way we live matters. That when we live a particular way, it ought to allow people to see the illumination of God's goodness shining through us to the point that it becomes an attraction rather than a repulsion. That how you and I live matters. That he's saying to the Jews that you guys actually allow the Gentiles to get worse because you lived just like them. You had holy clothing but a sinful heart, he said. That you did the service of the temple, but you dishonored God. Can you imagine that he's saying that you Jews were highly religious, but you actually lack the heart for God? It is commiserate or correlative to what Jesus said. He said to the Jews that you all draw nigh unto me with your lips and you praise me with your, heart, with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. <laughs> That's exactly what Paul is saying in a more modern version that you got church real good but you missed out the real purpose and that is to serve God by your life so come and I pray that as we look at this because in chapter chapter 2 Paul he deals with the fact that the Jews are guilty too and if the Jews and the Gentiles are guilty then the obvious conclusion and heaven prognosis is simply this that all of mankind are very much in trouble. He says, for all have sinned. And I'm thankful he didn't say, you all have sinned. So I'm saying that to say to you, that that should become a, a reason, an impetus, to treat each other with a certain sense of patience. 
to treat each other with a certain sense of consideration and love. Because just because you might be more disciplined and resolved than someone else is not a license to think that you're better than that person. Because you're not. The only reason you have a hope for heaven or to heaven is because of what God did through Jesus Christ. It's not anything you did. No amount of money in the bank can assure you a home or a hope in heaven. It's obedience to the gospel of Christ. Because sin is real, brothers and sisters. It is something that is real. It is something that is destructive. And as I close, I'm reminded of a young guy who went to a pet store, a humane society, and he saw a nice little monkey. He said, I like this monkey. So I'm going to take the pet monkey. So he took that pet monkey and he brought it home and he trained that little pet monkey very well. And every day he came home, the pet monkey would just run and jump on him and show him love. And that happened for a few months and the months turned into years and then of course the monkey grew. <laughs> and it happened that one day that the monkey had gotten so big that when the monkey jumped on him, the monkey actually broke his back. And that is exactly how sin works. At, at first, it starts off very small and cute and nice. But then when it grows, sin can break your back. It can literally break your life. Sin is the reason why everything is going wrong in the world. And there's a solution in Jesus Christ. That solution is the gospel. That is why you and I are here this morning. The Bible said, faith comes by hearing. And hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And after you hear that word, it is now your responsibility to believe. Hebrews 11 and verse 6. For without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is. And he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So upon that belief, it should now still within you the need to turn from the life you're living back to the one who created your life. In Luke chapter 11, verse 3 and 5, Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And upon that repentance, you are now called upon to confess Jesus as the king of your life. In Matthew 10 and verse 36, what Jesus said, he who denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. But he who confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. And it doesn't stop there. Because a lot of the times people would like for us to stop there and leave baptism out of the equation. Marshall Keeble was very noted for saying, he said a lot of preachers don't want you to get baptized, they don't want you to get wet. And he said part of the reason they don't want you to get wet is that dry wood burn faster. <laughs> That's what Marshall Keebles would say. You say, God wants you wet because when you're wet, you can deal with the fire. But when you're dry, you're going to burn up fast. And in as much as he had his witty way of dealing with that, he's absolutely correct. Because God included salvation in the equation, uh, baptism rather, in the equation. And he said in Mark chapter 16 and verse 15 and 16, he said, go, in, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not will be condemned. So I pray to you this time, Carmen, 
that as you've listened to the message, and if you're here and you're not a member of the body of Christ, you have the opportunity to accept the gospel today. A lot of the times we say we have a lot of time on our hands. But I'm a living witness to tell you that time is not a shorter. I tell this story everywhere I go. Part of the reason I became a Christian is when I realized the brevity of time. Before I became a Christian, I was, I was a street boy. I was wild, reckless. Grew up in a home with a military dad, but just wanted to be wayward, right? And I got so close to my cousin, who was a leader of a gang. And he used to ride a motorcycle, a 600 XTR, Yamaha, Yamaha XTR. And on that particular day, he had an altercation with his girlfriend. And his girlfriend left and went to her home. He jumped on his bike and he said to us in our presence that I'm coming back just now. I'm coming back just now, he said. It's been about 17 years now. And he hasn't returned. On his way to his girlfriend's house, he had an accident and he died instantly. And that stayed with me and that stood within me. The need to take life seriously. So I'm saying to you, you might be young. I'm saying to you, some of you might not even think that it's important to give your life to Jesus, but it is. It is. It's a big deal. Because everything God went through in sending his son to die, that's a big deal. And if you and I don't accept the love of God, then what else is there? What else? So I want to ask you to do one thing with me as I close. I want each and every one of you to stand. Everyone, just stand. Imagine with me for a while that as you're here standing, that the clouds of heaven started to roll back as a scroll. And the author of life is making his way towards the earth to judge. And if it is in your life right now that every single factor of your life is in check and that there is nothing wrong with you, if it is that you are a Christian and you have the assurance that you are going to make it back to heaven when he comes, if it is everything with you is consistent to everything he asks of you, then take your seat. If you have no need for Christ in your life, if everything is okay in your life, take your seat. Your standing is a representation that we all need God. We all need him differently. Because we all go through a different experience. We make different choices. We have different weaknesses. 
But the good and amazing thing about God is this. That irrespective of our differences as far as our needs are, His grace does the absolute same thing in all of us. And that is He forgives us, He cleanses us. And He gives us the opportunity to get it right with Him. The one who's carried to lead the song, I'm going to ask you to come at the front this time. The song leader. I'm going to ask you to lead one invitation song. And if you feel in any way led to ask the church to pray for you, or if you feel the need to surrender your life to Jesus or recommit your life to Jesus, today's the day to do that. If it is you're not a Christian, and you want to give your life to Christ, today's the day to do that. 